Well, good morning once again. Um, glad you're all here with us this afternoon. This is always that weird service that goes from morning to afternoon. So good afternoon. Glad you're here. Uh, glad you're with us. If you're visiting with us today, we're especially honored to have you. Always considered an honor that you would trust us with your time. Um, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love that opportunity to get to, to know who you are and, and how you came to Solid Rock and hear what God's doing in your life. So after the service, if you have time, I'd love to, to get to know you and hear more about what God's doing in your life. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15 this morning, uh, Acts 15, and so if you want to go ahead and turn there uh, in your Bible or on your phone, your tablet, your gadget, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you don't own a Bible, um, we put Bibles under the seats around you, and if you don't own a copy of God's Word, that's our free gift to you, we mean that, write your name in it, take it home, that's yours, we want you to have a Bible of your own. Um, we'll get prepared to start in Acts 15 in just a moment, a couple of things I want to make by way of announcement. Um, first of all, coming up on the calendar, so... In front of you, uh, there's a, there are some different uh, pieces of paper. The white one that says worship on it, that's got sermon notes on it, um, but it also on the back has the calendar on it. You may not be aware that we've put that there, so feel free to snag one of those and take it with you. Um, a couple things coming up. This Tuesday night um, on May the 9th in this room, we're going to have an all-member meeting. First of all, this is for our members or anyone thinking about becoming a member to come be a part of that discussion and hear about all that God is doing and planning for our future. We'll be looking at a lot of things. Uh, we'll be looking at the future of men's and women's ministry here at Solid Rock. We'll be looking at um, the future building plans, the blueprints. We'll be looking at the remodel blueprints for how we're going to remodel our current facilities for the, uh, to use every square foot for God's glory and His kingdom. Uh, we're also going to do a 3D uh, video tour of the new facilities. Uh, but first and foremost, we're going to talk about what it means to be a church uh, living this mission of Christ all in, and we'll do a report on that as well. Um, because at Solid Rock, ultimately, these buildings are just boxes. They're just tools uh, for God to use. The church is people. And so we want to continue to keep that at the forefront of our minds as we go forward. We're excited about um, all that God is doing, but the, most, the thing we're most excited about um, is the way God is changing lives for his glory. And so um, come be a part of that um, this Tuesday at 6.30. Um, also, next Sunday is Mother's Day. Men, children, let's honor our moms next Sunday. And then the Sunday after that on 21st is our fourth annual Night of Music. So if you haven't been here for a full year, I want to make sure you put that on your calendar. Uh, the 21st, 5 o'clock, we're going to meet here at the church and we'll do, um, we don't have enough room for everybody, so we eat outside. We'll do a big dinner outside and community, community groups is providing desserts. And then we'll come in here for a time of uh, listening to our very own worship team present songs that they've written. They'll put on a concert for us and then they'll end the night with a couple songs of worship. So it'll be a fantastic evening, night of music uh, coming up on May 21st. All right. So as we get ready to walk into Acts 15, or actually we've been in 15, as we get ready to finish chapter 15, um, what we're going to do is we're going to encounter a, a portion of the story of the church where two um, church leaders uh, disagree on something and they go their separate ways. Okay, That's what we're going to encounter today. Now, a couple things to help us understand um, how to better read the Bible. I don't know if you, like me, um, there, was a, there was a season in my journey as a Christian where um, I would open the Bible and I would get frustrated because I, I didn't really know what I was reading. I didn't get it all. I didn't understand it. Um, I would read, I would come across stories like the story of Noah, for example, and I'd read about how Noah was this righteous man, and, and so God deci decided to save Noah and his sons and their wives and repopulate the earth through this righteous man's lineage. And then a few chapters later, after the, the floodwaters recede and there's a rainbow in the sky, there's glorious Noah, 
drunk, passed out, naked in a tent, and his boys find him there. And I'm like, what is going on here? we got this righteous man, and now he's this drunken, naked guy here in his tent. What's, what do I do with that? And what I've learned over time is that um, it's so important for us to understand uh, how the Bible was written and what, what it presents to us. First of all, the Bible is full of stories, okay? It's one big story that's comprised of a lot of smaller stories or narratives, Oftentimes, what the biblical authors are seeking to do is tell us what happened, not always or necessarily what should have happened. So there's an authenticity to what we read. The biblical authors aren't doctoring up the stories, right, to to make it look like everybody's got it down but us. We're seeing these examples of real human beings, people, uh, striving to believe God and follow him, sometimes getting it right, and sometimes in Noah's case, getting it wrong, right? Case in point, Jonah. Right? God has this amazing thing he wants to do through Jonah. Jonah doesn't jump on board right away. He jumps on board, but it's a ship running away from God, not on board following God, but God redirects his path and brings him back around and ultimately fulfills his purpose through Jonah. So story after story in the Bible, um, we, we read about these real, uh, these real encounters with people who sometimes get it right, sometimes get it wrong. So what we're reading today at the end of Acts 15 is one of those stories, right, where uh, they don't get it right, they get it wrong. But the Bible is honest with us and shows us an example here. The second thing that's important for us in understanding how to read the Bible is this. We should always let Scripture interpret Scripture. So when you encounter something you don't understand, rather than our first response being going to our pastor or calling up our mom or dad and find out what they believe or downloading a podcast and listening to what somebody else believes or running to a commentary, our first response should be, what does the rest of the Bible say about this? So if you encounter a topic or something you're not sure about, right, we need to learn how to let the Bible interpret itself. Now beyond that, it's good to check in with spiritual leaders and check in with other Christians and, and see what their thoughts are, but that's after we've allowed the scripture to interpret itself. And so we're going to do both of those things this morning as we encounter um, a moment in the journey where Paul and Barnabas get a little crossways. In order to understand kind of the fullness of what's going to happen here, we kind of got to know their story, what happened. So Paul and Barnabas, man, they, they were off to a great start. Paul's first missionary journey, uh, he was accompanied by Barnabas, and he was also co- accompanied by a guy by the name of John Mark. They sail to the island of Cyprus, they minister there, the church explodes as it, as it was so frequently doing at that point in time, and then they, they sail to the mainland. Once they hit the mainland, we don't know the reason why, but John Mark bails. He deserts Paul and Barnabas and heads back to Jerusalem. Well, Paul carries on with his missionary journey, him and Barnabas, they hit some more cities, they, they encounter an angry mob that actually sees Paul. They throw rocks at him until they thought he was dead. They drag him outside the city uh, to throw him in the dump. And then his friends are out there to, to help kind of prepare his body for burial. And they realize, oh, wait, he's still alive. So Paul comes to, and he goes back into town, and they're following him back into town. And then he continues his missionary journey. Uh, and then we would expect Paul to go back home, right, after encountering this beating and all this hardship, but he doesn't. He says to Barnabas, hey, we've got to go back through all those towns again and encourage all those young believers and set up leadership in the churches. So they, they make this journey back. They get back to Antioch, which is where Paul writes the book of Galatians. And then last week we saw, um, this is where the Jerusalem Council uh, was, was initiated. Okay? So there, there were some struggles uh, in the church. And, uh, and so uh, Brian Lamb walked us through that last week, this theological struggle within the church. And they just said, you know, we've got to get together. Get all the apostles together, get all the elders together in one place, one time. Let's talk through this, 
come to a consensus, and then let's write a letter and send it out to the churches. Okay, so they've done all of that. Now we're at the end of 15. So Paul and Barnabas have been through a lot together, right? You wouldn't expect that something small would divide their friendship and their partnership, uh, but what we're going to see in chapter 15, starting in verse 36, is that a dispute arises between the two of them. So, verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. I love Paul's pastoral heart here, right? So Paul comes to Barnabas and says, Hey, Barnabas, remember all those towns where we preached the gospel? Yeah, I remember that. Remember all those Christians we encountered? Yeah, yeah. Remember how they threw rocks at me and you thought I was dead and they drove me outside the city? Yeah. We need to go back to those towns. We need to go back there. Why? Because we need to go and encourage and strengthen those Christians there. We left a lot of brand new Christians there in those towns who are probably encountering persecution. We need to, we need to go back there. And so, verse 37, Barnabas, willing to go, says that, or he says to Paul, basically, hey, we need to take John Mark. Verse 37 says, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. Okay, so this was the guy who bailed. We learn, out, we learn later in the New Testament, this is actually Barnabas' nephew or cousin. And so Barnabas says to Paul, yeah, let's do it, but we need to get John Mark. He needs to get his stuff packed and go with us. Well, Paul, in verse 38, didn't respond well. Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. The beginning of verse 39. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. So here's the situation. In a previous journey, John Mark had bailed on them. Barnabas says, hey, let's, let's get ready to go again. Let's take John Mark. So Barnabas is wanting to do the gracious thing. Hey, let's give him another shot, right? Which I'm so thankful that God gives us more than one shot. And so Barnabas is representing uh, the love and the grace of Christ here. Hey, let's give John Mark another shot. I think he'll do better this time. Paul, on the other hand, says, no. He's bailed on us once. He'll bail on us again. Too much is at stake. I don't know if you remember that whole throw rocks at me until I, they thought I was dead thing, but I'm not going to trust my life to somebody who's going to bail like that. And so they had a sharp disagreement here. So the question is not necessarily what happened. The question is what should have happened in this moment. When two Christians come to a place of sharp disagreement, what are we to do with that? Well, I've found um, over time and from the Council of Scripture that when we have disagreements with one another, um, typically our motives for those disagreements arrive or arise from one of three different categories. Let me walk you through uh, how this works. So the first category is this, personal preferences, okay? Personal preferences are those things that I like that you don't like, okay? So for example, um, on my hamburger, I like cheese, all the vegetables, and mayo, I'll eat it if you put mustard on it. I probably won't if you put ketchup on it. That's how I like it. It's my personal preference, right? So you have personal preferences on foods. You have personal preferences on styles of music. Uh, you have personal preferences, the way you like things, right? It's the, way, it's the way you like it, okay? We also have a category of motives that I would call personal convictions. This is deeper than that. This is where our principles come from, Okay? This is where I feel deeply convicted about certain things. Now, it's not necessarily that the Bible tells me I'm to be convicted about these things, but I do. 
So for example, you might find uh, personal convictions about um, the education you provide for your kiddos. So some families might say, uh, we desire to be a missional family, so we're gonna teach our kids about Christ at home, then we're gonna put them in public school so that that would be their first uh, missionary experiences is to encounter their peers and share Christ with their friends throughout school. Right? And, and, and a family could feel personally convicted about that. While another family might feel, you know what, we feel like it's our job to raise our children in the admonition of the Lord, to, to, to prepare them, and not to send them out too early, so we're going to do homeschool. We feel personally convicted about that, so we can keep our kiddos at home. Uh, one, of the, one of the two the spouses is going to stay home and teach the kids, raise them to know Jesus, and to be prepared to then go out after that. Both are valid, right? Valid ways to raise your children. Maybe you fall in between with private school but you feel personally convicted. Now, there's not a Bible verse that tells you you have to do it that way. It's just something that the Lord has led you to. It's your personal convictions, okay? A third category is this. It's the category of biblical convictions. These are the things that the Bible explicitly says. For better, for worse, like it or not like it, it's what the Bible clearly says. For example, the resurrection of Jesus, okay? That's not up for debate in the Bible, the authors of the Bible clearly believed it, right? You, the gospel is contingent on it. The resurrection of Jesus, you can decide if you believe that it happened or not, right? But that's not up for debate. That's not up for personal preference. If you're in Christ, what you're saying is, I believe that happened, right? And it's essential to what I believe. Uh, Brian Lamb last week talked about how we are saved uh, by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's not up for debate. You can't add anything to it to make the gospel any better. That's the way you're saved, Right? Don't add your fancy clothes, don't add your church lingo, you know, don't add your church attendance, how much money you give. Those things don't change your position between you and God. It's simply faith alone in Christ alone that changes that position. It's not up for debate, it's not a personal preference, not what I prefer, it's what the Bible clearly says. Biblical convictions, okay? Now, the problem that we have in our disputes with one another is oftentimes we take things, motives from all three categories, and we throw them all in together into one thing, which tends to be what? Who I am and how I operate. Now, just to kind of illustrate how, how easy um, our personal preferences can become debates. Um, I can remember, um, I can remember a, a, a heated and robust dialogue between my wife and I one time that began with how you load a dishwasher. Right? How you load a dishwasher? Your mom didn't teach you how to load the dishwasher? How you load a dishwasher? Started with such a simple personal preference that quickly escalated into what? I'm right, you're wrong. No, I'm right, you're wrong. Why does it have to be your way, not my way? And, and, and we allow personal preferences, don't we? So oftentimes to be these, these little small sparks that heat up quickly and become points of contention and points of debate. See, the problem is we just throw everything in together and we treat our personal pre preferences with the same kind of protectiveness and defensiveness that we do our biblical convictions, right? And we, and we treat people like, if you're trampling on my personal preferences here, it's like you're trampling on my doctrine, my, my biblical convictions, and we, and we approach those things with the same sense of angst and defensiveness. So we've got to learn to do is to take a step back and to sort things out. What's driving my motives in this dispute or this argument? Is it my personal preferences? Or is it my personal convictions? Or is it deeper than that? Is it my biblical convictions? So what we're gonna do is we're gonna journey through a few passages of scripture today to work these things out together. We're gonna start with personal preferences, okay? 
Personal preferences. Um, how many of you right now feel like it's too hot in this room? Raise your hand. I'm with you, Steve and Ryan. Thank you. Thank you in the back. How many of you feel like it's too cold? Okay. How many of you feel like it's just right? Okay. Wow. We're destined to not be a unified church right there, right? Now, I know I'm being silly, but if our unity is contingent on the temperature in the room, we'll never be a unified church, right? Let's take hamburgers, for example. How many of you like mustard? Okay. How many of you like mayonnaise? Ketchup? Barbecue sauce? All the above? Nothing? Holy cow. We're never going to unify around hamburgers, right? So point, the point is this. We're never going to unify around our personal preferences, so what do we do with them? In Philippians chapter 2, let's go to Philippians 2, verse 1. The Apostle Paul, who is in this moment, keep in mind, this is the same guy having this dispute with Barnabas. Later on in his ministry, with hindsight, he's looking back and he's writing about what we do with our personal preferences. Verse 1 of Philippians 2, Paul writes, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. To which I respond to the Apostle Paul, how do we do that? We can't even agree on the temperature in the room or what to put on our hamburgers. And so he gives us counsel. Here's how we do it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Paul is describing my personal preferences as my selfish ambition. It's what I want. And did you notice the second word that he uses to describe my personal preferences? Conceit. When I put my personal preferences above yours and I say my way is better or my way is right, I'm being conceited in that moment. Think about that. He says do nothing out of selfish ambition or out of conceit. Essentially, do not let your personal preferences drive you. And look what he says. But instead, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6 and 7, he's going to point to Jesus as our example on how to do this, okay? How do we do that? How do I put your interests above mine? He describes Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead, so in other words, Jesus didn't come to earth making sure everybody knew he was God, right? He didn't, he didn't consider that something to be grasped, but instead, what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So we see that beautifully displayed all throughout the life of Christ. We talked about washing of feet earlier. Holy cow, you talk about setting aside personal preferences, right? Jesus takes off his outer garments of dignity and respect, and, and he, he takes essentially the garments of a servant. This is the creator of the universe. Humbles himself and kneels down to wash the dirty, filthy feet of his sinful creation. And what Paul is saying is take on his example. That's how you put others' interests before your own. That's how you not let your life be driven by selfish ambition and personal preferences. Here's a really good question to ask yourself. If you find yourself in a dispute 
potentially over personal preferences, here's the question you need to ask yourself. What's more important to me right now? What I want or loving you? Getting what I want or loving you? Because I can't do both. Right? If I get what I want, who am I loving? Me. And I'm not loving you. And so you find yourself in a dispute over personal preferences. That needs to be the question. You step back and ask yourself, wait a second, hold the phone. Am I seeking my own ambition here or am I seeking to love you? Am I putting my interests in the forefront or am I putting yours in the forefront? And the scriptures are gonna say this to those of us who are in Christ who have encountered the grace, the love of this God who has saved us and through humility served us. There is no room in Christ for personal preferences. Check them at the door. Holy cow, church. There is no room for us to divide over personal preferences. Just eat the sting hamburger, right? Just set them aside, your personal preferences for the sake of others. Now, that's, that's the easy one to talk about. What happens when we get into the area of, per, of personal convictions now? What do we do with those? I think this is the difficult area to talk about this morning. It's such an important topic that the Apostle Paul will set aside over one and a half chapters in the book of Romans to deal with this topic. Um, The entirety of chapter 14 is about what we do with these disputable personal convictions. And the two examples, we're not going to read the whole chapter, we'll just look at a couple verses, but the two examples that the Apostle Paul points to from his current culture are these. One, the uh, the day that you worship on. Okay, That was a point of division and dispute in the early church. Because the church was made up of a lot of folks who had a Jewish background, right? And they come from a long lineage of worshiping God on Saturday, the Sabbath. Everybody knows you set aside the Sabbath, Saturday, to worship on. The problem was the gospel had gone beyond the Jews to the Gentiles and every tribe, every language, every color of skin, right? Was, they were becoming saved and becoming adopted into the family of God. And so the Gentiles had really no background in, in, in Jewish history. And so they were saying, hey, Jesus resurrected on Sunday. Let's worship on Sunday. This weekly reminder that he's overcome the grave for us. Let's do this. And so what was happening? They were disputing in the church. The Jews were looking at the Gentiles saying, you're doing it wrong. You've got to worship on Saturday. You're a day late. Boo. The Gentiles were saying, no way. We're six days early. We're worshiping on Sunday, Resurrection Day. Catch you next Saturday, right? And they, but they were disputing and dividing over this, this thing that essentially there wasn't a Bible verse to tell them what day to worship on, but they had these personal convictions about it. A second um, topic that he's going to mention in Romans 14 was the food that they ate. Now, I know we are a foodie culture, well aware of what we're eating, but their food struggle was a lot different from ours. Because in this cultural time, a lot of the pagan uh, worship experiences included food that had been sacrificed to idols, okay? And so from a, from a mature theological perspective, Paul's going to say, hey, here's the thing, come in close. And none spiritual about that food, just eat it. I don't care who it was sacrificed to because it's a false god and that god doesn't really exist, so it's still just chicken. However, there were folks who were Christians who came from a pagan background, right? And they remember growing up in those environments. And so when they ate the food that was sacrificed, it reminded them of worshiping a false god. And so they didn't want to have anything to do with it. And they would push away from the table. Matter of fact, a lot of them were just saying, hey, we're just going to go strictly vegetarian here. That way we don't ever make a mistake on eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And so these were the two hot topic items that the Apostle Paul deals with in Romans 14. Again, these are just personal convictions, not necessarily biblical convictions, personal convictions. 
And so here's, what, here's some of what he says in, in Romans 14, verse 1. He says, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Okay? Got no room here for opinions or personal preferences. He says this, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who? Both of them. Both of them. Right? Neither one has wrong personal convictions. The problem that Paul was encountering here is that they were letting their personal convictions divide each other. Say, if you're personally convicted about what you eat and you just want to abstain, that's fine, do that. That's fine, do that. But don't let it separate you from the church. Don't let it cause division between you. Verse 19, he's going to tell us how to handle these personal convictions. He says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. So in every scenario and situation, I need to make sure, am I pursuing peace here? Am I pursuing what builds you up? And then he says this. He says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. What is he saying here? He's saying you've got your equation upside down. It's not wrong to have personal preferences and to like what you like on your cheeseburger or your burger, right? It's not wrong. He says, I'm wrong to have personal convictions. But when you let these two things destroy the work of God, your equation is upside down. It should be flipped. What's most important to you should be the work of God. Sound doctrine, the things that the Bible clearly says, not your personal preferences. Now the problem with this is in our day and time, the culture outside of the church is preaching a different message. The culture we live in is saying what? Your personal preferences should drive everything, including what biblical doctrine you choose to hold on to. If you don't prefer it, you don't like it, just drop it and walk away. Pretend like you didn't read it, right? Just pretend like it's not in there. Find something else in the Bible you like and then make that your biblical doctrine, right? You just do what feels good to you. You do what seems right to you. Operate within your personal preferences and everybody else can take a hike. And what the Bible is doing for us is saying, man, that equation is not only jacked up, it's upside down. You need to flip it and the work of God should be the primary motive that drives you. Do not let your opinions, your personal preferences, or even your personal convictions destroy the work that God is doing in the church and in your life. And we got to take a step back, don't we? So what do we do when we find ourselves in a dispute over personal convictions? Here's what I would encourage each one of us to do. First of all, as always, we check our hearts, and we ask, where's this motive coming from? And second of all, we hold our personal convictions, but we hold them loosely. Never above the primary work that God is doing. I never allow my personal convictions to cause you to stumble. Look at what he says. He says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. And he he says, hey, come here. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes a brother to stumble. So Brian Lamb talked about this last week. He used alcohol as an example, right? You're not going to find a Bible verse that tells you you should drink or you shouldn't drink. It's just not there. You're going to find biblical counsel about alcohol, 
You're going to find biblical counsel that would say, hey, it might be better for you to not drink. You need to think about the influence you're having on other people. You need to think about your ability to control yourself, right? You need to think about a lot of things. And maybe for you, you probably having a, a personal conviction that you shouldn't drink is the best choice for you, right? The Bible doesn't just come out and, and say it, don't drink, right? Just a lot of counsel about it. However, we also have freedoms in Christ, and the Bible doesn't say that you shouldn't drink. It gives us actually instructions on if we're going to drink, how to drink. So, right, so then you might say, well, my personal conviction is that it's okay for me to drink. What Paul is saying to us is that we don't let our personal convictions ever destroy the work God is doing and divide us. So, the person who feels at liberty, like, hey, I'm, I'm free to drink, should be willing to do what? To check their personal convictions at the door for the sake of others. Whether it's the food you eat, it's what you drink, what day you worship on, all these personal convictions, we hold them, but we hold them what? Loosely. Never above one another in our, in our, in our, our, excuse me, our convictions and sound biblical doctrine. So the question should be, check your heart, hold them loosely, and ask yourself this question, am I trying to build you up right now or build myself up right now? Am I trying to prove myself right right now, right? Or am I trying to build you up right now? And this final category of biblical convictions is really an important one for us to talk about. Before we talk about it, let me ask just some rhetorical questions. Um, if you're in the room and you're over the age of 30, I'm going to ask you some questions. The rest of you, you kind of already know everything, so I don't need to talk to you. But the rest of us are tr still trying to figure life out. We don't have it down. So if you're over 30, remember when you were 16 and you knew it all? Do you remember that? And so your parents said stuff and they were just dumb. But then do you remember becoming 18 and you look back at 16 and realize how foolish you were at 16, but you had finally figured it all out? Do you remember that? But remember, though, what happened when you turned 21 and you look back at 18 and went, I was such a fool. Why did I date her, right? Why did I, why did I buy that car? Why did I, I was so foolish at 18. Now I'm so glad I turned 21 and I've got it all figured out. And then remember when you became 30 and you look back on all those years and you went, holy cow, I don't know how I survived. Right? It's a wonder they haven't locked me up or, or buried me in a grave. I don't know. I was so dumb back then, but oh, here I am now, and I got it all figured out. Now, what do those rhetorical questions teach us? There's not a person in this room or on the, on the face of the earth, for that matter, who has it all figured out. Okay? So as we begin to talk about biblical doctrine, we always have to be ready to submit our biblical convictions to, hear me on this, not one another, but the counsel of scripture, the counsel of God's word. In our governing documents as a church, we talk about how um, it's our conviction that when the Bible's um, explicitly clear, we land firmly there. However, um, in disputable matters where the Bible's not as clear, we want to land softly. So that's how we describe where we land as a church. And one of the statements in there says this, even when we land firmly, right, with biblical convictions, we do so never in such a way that our biblical convictions are not up for revision according to the scriptures. Why? Because we don't have it all figured out. When you look at our statement of faith as a church, we're saying this is the best we understand right now about who God is, who he's created us to be. It's our best interpretation of the scriptures. Now rest well. We have searched, we have prayed, we have studied, we have wrestled for a long amount of time right, to get to these landings. We didn't just flip a coin, right? However, as Christ's followers, we should never land so firmly that our biblical convictions are not up for revision according to the scriptures. 
If you're a Christian here today, surely there's been something in your life that you believed that you thought was absolutely true, and then you read something in the Bible and went, I was wrong about that. Holy cow. And God enlightened you and corrected a misconception you had about him or yourself or the church, and, and we always need to be ready to allow our biblical convictions be measured against the truth of God's word. Now, that being said, we do know from Titus 1.9 and other passages um, that God does call us to hold firmly to our biblical convictions. Hold loosely our personal convictions, hold firmly to our biblical convictions. Matter of fact, it's a requirement for an elder in the church. Titus 1.9 says this, that um, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. See, there's this calling for us who are in Christ to hold firm to the things that the Bible clearly says. That's biblical convictions, right? Now, the problem that oftentimes emerges is once we finally get to that part of the dispute, from there, oftentimes things go crazy wrong. Crazy wrong. And I'm gonna, we're gonna walk through one more passage of scripture where Paul gives us counsel on, handled, on how to handle disputes. I want to remind you, this is the same guy who did not handle his dispute very well in Acts 15. Okay, Years later, matter of fact, this is about 15 years later, he's writing a letter to a young pastor, and he's Timothy, it's in 2 Timothy, and he gives him instruction on how to handle disputes and quarrels. Okay, This is in 2 Timothy 2. He tells Timmy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Well, why not, Paul? Because you know that they breed quarrels. What he's saying, if you are pushing your personal agenda, pushing your personal preferences, even your personal convictions, you can rest assured what you're gonna breed is a quarrel in the church. He says, have nothing to do with that mess. Here's what you need to do. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but instead... Be kind to everyone. Now, he's going to list four things that should accompany our deep-rooted biblical convictions. The first one is this. Be kind to everyone. Be kind. In Christ, you never have permission to quit being kind. So when you find yourself in a dispute with somebody about a primary doctrine of the church, right, a primary biblical teaching, you never have permission to be unkind. Now, I do not know where we got this misconception that somehow biblical principles and doctrine don't apply to our interaction on social media. You understand, everything that comes out of your mouth and everything that you type, right, are subject to this. You're to be kind with those you disagree with. Even on primary doctrinal issues, we never have permission to not be kind. Okay? So be kind to everyone Able to teach, and this is really important. And I would interchange able with willing, willing to teach. So in my dispute with you about a primary doctrinal issue, not only am I commanded by Scripture to be kind to you, I'm also commanded to be willing and able to teach you. To not just say that's the way it is and walk away, but to say, hey, can we, can we set up a time to meet and talk? I'd like to hear your stance and where you come from And with your permission, I'd like to share with you how I got to my position too, right? Now, that takes work, doesn't it? It's a whole lot easier just draw the line in the sand, you're wrong, and walk away. But it's hard work to say, hey, I'm willing to work through this with you. Are you willing to come meet me at Starbucks maybe and just talk through this and 
and let me share with you why I believe what I believe. So not only am I obligated to be kind, I'm obligated to be able and willing to teach. And then the next thing he mentions is this, patiently enduring evil. Now, do not assume that if somebody disagrees with you doctrinally that they're automatically evil and you're right. Okay? Because you might learn something, right, through this other person. What he's saying is, even if they're just dead wrong evil still, right, you are to endure that conversation with them with patience. Now, patience invokes the idea that this might take a while. Right, so just because I can't convince you in an hour that I'm right and you're wrong, right, the conversation's not done. I need to be willing to patiently endure with you. What will happen is probably in the end, we're both wrong on some level, and God's going to work on both of our hearts. If we'll operate in kindness with a willingness and ableness to teach, patiently enduring with one another, and then the last thing is this, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And that brings us full circle back to kindness, doesn't it? I must be gentle with you, you with one another. And if we do so, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to knowledge of the truth. Now, isn't that what we want, right? When you're in a dispute with somebody, you want to lead them to truth. But with this this counsel to us, there's room for us to grow as well, isn't there? There's room for us to be humble. There's there's, there's encouragement for us to be kind, to be gentle, to be patient, long-suffering, and always willing to do the hard work of teaching. So some questions you can ask yourself if you find yourself in a dispute with somebody. Is my approach to this person kind? Was I being kind? Is, is, am I willing to take the time to teach this person from the scriptures? Is my approach to this person patient? Is my approach to this person gentle? Now, what I want to do is I want to come back to the story in Acts 15 and see how it all shook out. Okay? So all we know at this point is Paul and Barnabas had this massive dispute. Right? And so here's what happens. Picking this back up in 39. So Barnabas took Mark and he sailed for Cyprus. So Barnabas says, fine, Paul, you want to be that way? You want to be a jerk about John Mark? These are just my words, not his. Then tell you what, Mark and I, we'll go do our thing. We're going to head to Cyprus. And Paul, here's what he does. Paul chose Silas and he left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cecilia, or Cilicia, sorry, strengthening the churches. Now, here's what I want to propose to you. This is the beautiful thing about how God works. There's a principle that the scriptures teach, and it's this. Where the ideal is absent in any area of life, the grace of God has the opportunity to abound. So let me apply that maybe to marriage for a minute. Um, I feel like I have a really, really good marriage, healthy marriage. I don't have a good marriage with my wife because I get it right all the time. Where I get it wrong, the grace of God fills up what is lacking, and God blesses the marriage and makes it better than what I could work out on my own. And he does the same for my wife as well. Parenting, I am not even close to, having, to being a perfect parent. So at the end of the day, any good things you see coming out of our boys' lives is because the grace of God is filled up in what we're lacking, right? And so where the ideal is absent, the grace of God has, God has the opportunity to abound, Okay? Now, here's what's beautiful about this story. Even though Paul and Barnabas didn't get it right, look at what the grace of God does. And and so this is a geographic lesson here. So Paul and Silas head up north. Barnabas and John Mark head over to the island of Cyprus. Strategically, this is actually a better move 
They actually cover more ground, share the gospel with more people, encourage and strengthen more churches because of this dispute. Now, is that God saying, hey, you shouldn't get along, you should dispute? No, that's God saying, even in the midst of your foolishness, my church is unstoppable and my grace will stink and abound. This is an unstoppable mission, not because you guys always get it right, but because even when you get it wrong, I'm going to do this. This is what Jesus has said to his followers. I am going to build my church. And it's not a church for one ethnicity. It's not a church for one generation. This church will span the globe. It will bridge across every ethnical boundary for every generation. Jesus says, this is what I'm going to do. Come be a part of it, but this is what I'm going to do. He says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Not because Solid Rock has it all figured out. Are you kidding me? God's doing a work here despite us. God's doing a work here in, in the midst of our inadequacies and our imperfections and our weaknesses. The grace of God is filling up what is lacking and God's saying, I'm doing the work here. And so what's beautiful about this example is even when we get it wrong, especially in our most important relationships, the grace of God has the opportunity to abound. Hey, praise God. Praise God, because if my marriage was contingent on what I can do, we'd have been done a long time ago. I would have let my personal preferences and my pet peeves drive a wedge. I'd have left her over the fact that she can't load a dishwasher the way I want her to load a dishwasher. That's how stubborn and foolish we are, right? We allow our personal preferences to drive our motives and, and cause disputes. But by the grace of God, right, God has washed over us. He has brought forgiveness to us. He's filled up what is lacking. He's causing us to grow more and more every day. And listen, this is an unstoppable mission by God, but he's calling us to interact with one another in a certain way. And so I want to end here. Um, I don't know what disputes are currently going on in your life. Um, there's a good chance that there is one, um, whether it was from 20 years ago. And if you run into that person today, it'll well up all that emotion. You'll feel all that pain and agony and bitterness again. Or maybe it was your drive to church this morning. Okay? I don't know where it is, but we're all prone to do this, aren't we? Put our personal preferences on the top, and what happens is every time we'll drive a wedge. Every time we'll cause dispute and division. And so today, I just want to encourage you to let the counsel of God's word fall on you. And if he brings to mind an important relationship, whether it's from your drive to church this morning or from 20 years ago, um, that, that God wants you to pursue reconciliation in that matter, in that situation. Um, so I want to leave you with that. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up. Um, I want to lead us in a time of prayer. Um, I'm going to ask that our prayer partners would be um, at the back of the room. Um, they're there to pray for you. Um, if God has brought something to mind this morning and you just want to ask somebody to pray for you about it, um, they'd be honored to do that. Um, if you want to learn more about becoming a Christian and how to do that, our prayer partners will be at the back of the room for that as well. So I want to pray for us and then we're going to respond this morning. Let's pray. Um, Father, uh, first of all, God, just thank you that the Bible is so authentic and real. Um, not only does it include stories of, of how things are supposed to go, but you sought fit to include examples of where people get it wrong. And God, that's encouraging to us. Um, God, as much as we want to get it right, we know that we stumble, we fall, we get it wrong. And so we thank you for your grace this morning. And Father, right now across this room, there's a good chance there are our broken relationships present here in this very room. 
God, relationships that matter more than our personal preferences or even our, our personal convictions, that, that God, you would have us go to that person and seek reconciliation and forgiveness. God, maybe others of us need to go home and make a phone call or get on Facebook and try to find somebody from our past and and God, not in an effort to pay for any sins that we may, but just in an effort to, to walk in reconciliation, to walk in unity, to have one heart, one mind as your body. So Father, now we want to turn this time over to you. We ask for your Holy Spirit to move in this room, move in our hearts, guide us, convict us, encourage us, meet us where we are, we pray in the powerful name of Jesus.